This episode, I'm joined by Western esotericism scholar Chris Goodisher to discuss the work of Kenneth Grant. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paying patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you'd like to support the podcast and keep everything running, please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Chris Goodisher, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We are going to be discussing the work of Kenneth Grant uh, and the Typhonian tradition. Um, People... Well, if people know Grant's work, they'll know him biographically as the secretary of Alistair Crowley. And then I guess in a literary sense, if they have read him, it would most likely be the magical revival. And then maybe also the fact that he was a, sort of a promoter of uh, Osmond Spare as well, which is sort of a key key element of his work. But uh, we'll, and also the connection to Lovecraft as well, but we'll be getting into all these uh, all these things. Um, but uh, before we do so, before we get into the weeds of Grant, Lovecraft, Magic, Crowley, all this lovely stuff, Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself, what it is you do, and um, well, yeah, what's your, you have sort of a, a long history of, of writing things on Grant and then writing papers on Grant. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, um, basically, it started in... Uh, uh, when I started my MA at Exeter University, uh, I was uh, one of the few lucky people who uh, actually got to do that master's because it wasn't a life for a long time. And um, the head of the program was Nicholas Goodrick Clark, uh, who is uh, uh, an academic legend in his own right. Uh, he wrote uh, The Occult Roots of Nazism, is his most popular book. And, uh, yeah, there was this two-year master's program which uh, covered everything, really, from Renaissance magic, Ficino, Pico della Mirandola, and Agrippa, all the way to 20th century. Um, although uh, Nicholas uh, wasn't too keen on 20th century occultism, he preferred the kind of more highbrow kind of earlier stuff. Um so my interest in uh, an academic approach to the subject started off uh, started off then. So it would have been two thousand and seven. Um, but I had begun reading Grant uh, in I think it was late nineties or early two thousands. They were way too early for my own good. Um, and uh yeah so i've i've been in uh, i was in academia until 2016 um when i finished my phd and um uh, i still to this day uh go to the odd conference and uh write the odd paper and uh i'm always focusing on 20th century so when it comes to when it comes to thelema uh or thelemic uh, the thelemic milieu in general um, I think Crowley has become uh, a very overcrowded figure. Um, and there's lots of people, luckily, writing about uh, various aspects of Crowley, which have, have been neglected until now in a, in a in a very kind of erudite and academic way. Um, so uh, I can't... I've, I've been interested in Grant more than Crowley for quite a bit now, and uh, so I'm I'm happy to be able to 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 write about him. You mentioned that Crowley's overcrowded. What do you mean? What do you, or would you can you care to expand? Yeah, on that? yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, I think I think there was there was a very long period within within academia, and I'm talking until probably the early two thousands when. Um, you really wouldn't want to write on uh, this kind of stuff. Then you have, uh, because there were kind of uh, higher and more respectable kind of um, occultists or followers of the Western esoteric tradition, if we want to go back, you know, to the to the 1600s, 1700s. Um, but things started changing in uh, early 2000s, which is kind of when I got involved uh, with the academic milieu, um, especially with uh, with the publication of Marco Palsi's Alistair Crowley and the Temptation of Politics, which is a pretty awesome book, 
and it's been translated. It actually came out in Italian because it was his thesis, and it was it's been translated in German and English, I think. Mm. And uh, it was it was really kind of a breath of fresh air to read something about Crowley that wasn't kind of sensationalist and was you know very accurate and um, based on research and facts. And then um, Henrik Bogdan edited. Um, a book published by Oxford University Press on Alistair Crowley and uh, West Indies esotericism. And that kind of um, opened the floodgates to uh, Crowley studies uh, within the wider framework of West Indies esotericism. And um, so you have loads of scholars. (laughs) And by loads of scholars, I mean, I'm obviously talking about like 10, 15, but within the kind of tiny milieu of Western esotericism, uh, it's it's a lot of people writing on different aspects of of, uh, Crowley's influence, which obviously has been massive. And uh, uh, I'm very happy for every book that comes out. But uh, at the same time, um, it's kind of nice, at least for me, to kind of delve into uncharted territories and write about stuff that hasn't really been uh covered yet you know that i did that with my with my phd when um i basically wrote about um occultism and secret societies uh during the fascist regime which is kind of a counterpart to uh, to nicholas's book on you know to the uh, occult roots of nazism um but also in in the case of what we're talking about today uh about kenneth grant so um while I was doing my MA, um, I actually asked Nicholas if I could uh, if I could write my um, MA dissertation on Kenneth Grant. And uh, at first, he said no. He didn't want me to waste my career on. Uh, I think he called it petty chaos magic, which kind of yeah, which showed that he wasn't kind of an, a real expert on the subject. Uh, but then he actually he actually agreed and. Uh, at the end, when when he read the whole thing, he was he was really enthusiastic about it and kind of was really happy that he had given me the chance to write that. And uh, obviously, uh, to write that MA thesis, I had to reread all of the trilogies multiple times, which kind of uh, took a toll on, on my sanity. Uh, but you know, did you still? I mean, often the case. Did you still sort of love his work after that? Because often the case is when you write something on your masters, it makes you almost. Or you do it, whatever you write your masters or your PhD on, you sort of go back and look at it, and it makes you feel sick. Um, so you still do you still do you still dip into his work now? I assume. Yep. No, I do. I do. He's really one of the few uh, that I've written extensively on that I actually uh, go back to, and every time there's something new that I haven't that I hadn't kind of uh, thought about before, mm-hmm. and I think it's because he really kind of tends to write in. Uh, really layered way Mm. and so if you read it and you're at the beginning of your you know uh occult trajectory you know academic or not then you're going to understand let's say a small percentage of what grant's writing about but you know the the longer the time passes and the more you kind of are on this journey um the more things will appear uh, obvious and you'll be like huh you know i wasn't expecting to find this concept explained here albeit in a very kind of weird way but that is kind of what happens with me uh with grant and uh yeah i mean it, it's not easy reading but uh i definitely definitely go go back to it so there, there's one thing i want to touch upon about what you said just before we you know, sort of delaying our talk on ground a little bit here, but it is tangential because you mentioned, you know, this um, attitude towards Crowley and in a recent talk with uh, John Michael Gray, who I'm sure you're aware of his work, he he often has this thing about Crowley where he says, I finally, I finally got him to admit to why he dislikes Crowley so much or dislikes him a fair amount. And he basically said that the, for a certain point in history, there was this conflation that, you know, occultism in general is like, it's all basically Alistair Crowley. And he overshadowed so many other figures that were in the far, further past, those sort of highbrow figures that we were talking about. But he also overshadowed a lot of his day. And also, and this is from Greer, his popularity actually, Greer explicitly says his popularity and his popular popularization was down really to two figures, one of which was Kenneth Grant and the other being Grady McMurtry. And I just just wondered if you were 
it's somewhat how you feel about that as Crowley is this often sort of um, quite over over overbearing figure even though the history of occultism really for those who who get deep is one of of um, two words sharing and plagiarism I think they are intimate absolutely absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, well I have like no qualms with Crowley I don't mm. dislike him as a figure um, I um, I don't really have like uh, any issue at all. I think he was like one of the greatest synthesizers of 19th century occultism. And uh, um, maybe for the day, he was uh, a bit ahead of his time. And so um, the biggest vogue back in the day was probably theosophy. Uh, I'm talking early 20th century. And uh, I think, Theosophy and Thelema or, or Blavatsky and Crowley. Let's 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 put it Blavatsky and Crowley probably is a better way to put it. Uh they were like two fundamental figures. Uh even though no one really talks about Blavatsky today, but I mean the impact it had on uh almost like anything like art, music, uh, visual arts, um politics, um, eugenics, uh religion, like every aspect was informed by uh, what Blavatsky and other minor theosophists had written. And so you have kind of the first half of the 20th century, I think, well, at least until the, the Second World War, uh, where a lot of stuff is actually influenced by Blavatsky. Mm. Then from the 60s onwards, you have this kind of rebel, kind of Dionysian figure uh, that is Alistair Crowley, which incarnated the spirit of the age way better than you know good old helena petrovna blavatsky and so you have you know you, you have music referencing crowley you have you know directors like kenneth anger uh, making movies that are explicitly uh, derived uh, from crowley's ideas and i think it's you know more or less inevitable really um that someone who was in many ways, like a precursor and and a rebel against the norms of his day, would be celebrated uh, by sixties and seventies kind of counterculture. And so nowadays, we more or less have the same. Although with the internet, with the advent of the internet and everything, it's kind of easier to see where uh, people have been. Um, Picking and choosing, and uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say plagiarizing because I don't know, but yeah, you know what I mean. It's uh, we, we know where they got their stuff from, and so it's not so amazing and awe-inspiring uh, anymore. But I think that both these figures are just uh, incredible, and like, and what they did kind of uh, influenced everything that we have uh, nowadays mm-hmm. in the world of in the world of occultism. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, and the reason I want to, uh, fo- well, focused a fair bit of there on Crowley is, I mean, Grant's, Kenneth Grant's biography and, and life and work is really not detachable from, from that of Crowley. Uh, and it was interesting, you know, because I wanted to know, as I often do, more about Grant as a figure. So I asked you, you know, oh, has there been a biography produced? And you said, well, no, because such a thing would be really boring. Uh, well, fairly boring. It would be, you know, home pub, home pub, maybe some classes or whatever it might be. Um, and so that leads me to the question, I mean, who who was this, uh, who was this guy, Kenneth Grant? And I think it, and I guess maybe the most important biographical event for our talk is is him meeting Crowley I think he was 21 or even yeah, 21. 21. 21. Yeah. 21. Uh, basically um he met Crowley um a couple of years before Crowley's death and um I think it was 45 and he he'd bought um uh, magic and theory and practice by Crowley at Watkins bookshop and um was really uh, interested in what he'd read so he'd gone kind of to pester Watkins and to ask him to uh, give him Crowley's address so that he could actually you know write a letter to Crowley and obviously Crowley was you know at the end of his occult career at the end of his uh, life he was uh, in uh, uh, Netherwood in um, uh, Hastings 
And so he was uh, in this boarding house, really uh, um, not really having kind of an active social social life, even though a few people still pass by to visit. So getting a letter from this very, very young guy uh, obviously excited Crowley because he felt like he could, uh, he had still um, lots of things that he could pass on to like a younger generation. And so for a brief while, um, Kenneth Grant acted as Crowley's secretary. Um, that was until um, Grant's father, who was a clergyman, he kind of realized that Grant was really up to no good and um, kind of um, wasn't too happy about this and um, forbade Grant to, to visit Crowley will see him uh, again. So when 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 they kind of separated on a professional level, they they never saw each other. Even though Grant did go to uh, Crowley's funeral in 1947, uh, he he'd recently gotten married with uh, with his wife Steffi. Uh, so so the two of them were were in Hastings for the funeral. Uh, but in those two very brief years, uh, Crowley had a massive influence uh, on on Crowley and. Um, Lots of times uh, in um, Grant's recollections, you know, he he would be at Crowley's and he would be like copying, like manually copying or typing out uh, manuscripts by Crowley, um, you know, magical instructions or recollections, diary entries, whatever, while he received guests and stuff. You know, he would be there kind of frantically copying and trying to preserve, you know, what what could be preserved, you know, and... So, so the reason why we we do have uh, a wealth of material by Crowley today is uh, is uh, also because of the work that Grant did in those in those two years. But it wasn't only you know it wasn't only secretarial work. I mean, he he also uh, he also managed to um, become really interested in Thelema, and I think wholeheartedly embraced. Um, Thelema as as a way of life and as a philosophy slash religion, um, and and Crowley kind of realised the the value that uh, that Grant had uh, in in one of his in one of his final letters to um, to um, the future uh, head uh, of the OTO. He basically wrote to him oh utility of grant you know if i die uh, he would make a great head of uh, the oto in the uk and uh so this was a letter to carl germer who then who then became the head of the oto when when crowley died um so i think it was kind of mutually beneficial in that it kind of pleased crowley to um be able to still talk about magic and impart his teachings to someone who was really interested. And obviously Kenneth Grant had kind of just right at the end of Crowley's life, found someone that could teach him something. And uh, of course, of course, Grant was quite quick at learning and he realized pretty soon that there were areas in which Crowley was like sorely lacking. Uh, one of them being Tantra. And uh, so very, very quickly kind of Grant sussed him out and kind of realized that uh, Crowley didn't really have the huge knowledge on Tantra um, that, uh, that, you know, was implied. Uh, but Crowley made no qualms about that and kind of referred him to, um, to Kerwin, who was an another member of the OTO and uh, much more knowledgeable in, in Tantra. Um, that than Crowley was, so um, he kind of was very honest about that with uh, with Grant, and of course uh, Crowley gave Grant um, the lamb painting, which we're probably going to talk about later on when we talk about uh, aliens uh, and uh, extra dimensional entities in uh, in in Grant's writings and in Grant's life. So was was Grant interested in occultism prior to Crowley, or was it sort of like reading various things and not really getting anything that that was really sticking? 
Um, at that early age, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. But he was always interested in uh, Eastern doctrines, and uh, he wanted to um, uh, join the army and be stationed in the East so that he could learn more about um, about these ideas. And at one point, he um, was really interested in um, the non-duality uh, ideas they found in uh, Rama Maharshi's Vedanta. And uh, was uh, and he wrote about he wrote about Vedanta and uh, um, and its tenets in quite a few articles uh, which have been uh, published together in a volume called At the Feet of the Guru. So that was something that he was really into. But I think the first kind of uh, taste of like real uh, occultism came with his purchase of magic and theory and practice. So we could probably begin to start piecing his, uh, you know, because he has a very distinct and unique uh, work of his own um, throughout all, of, you know, throughout all of the Typhonian trilogies in his own books. So we have Thelema, but as I understand from your own master's thesis on Grant and from Grant's own work, it's Thelema, but with this, even though there is an emphasis on Egypt and set somewhere within Thelema, more so. Um, Grant really hones in on this. And then we also have the Eastern stuff coming through. So how does this, uh, what does this lineage look like? And how does this uh, magical, to put it roughly, worldview begin to build? Right. Okay. So I think the the most useful thing we can do without kind of uh, losing ourselves along the way is to kind of trace um, trace the ideas behind the Typhonian tradition and, and how he, he got to the concept of a Typhonian tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, one of Brandt's our biggest influences was uh, an Egyptologist, well, a self-styled Egyptologist. Uh, he never he never actually left Britain, never visited Egypt. And uh, so um, – his actual uh, knowledge of e- Egyptology is kind of debatable. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about uh, Gerald Massey, obviously, who is actually hugely influential. He was he was an influence on Crowley. Crowley talks about him in uh, Magic and Theory and Practice um, when uh, when talking about ancient Egypt and uh, talking about ancient Sumer. And uh, he's talking about uh, Iris, his holy guardian angel, and uh, the fact that he came from ancient Sumer, and he kind of starts talking about the Yitzidi. And he's like, well, if you want to know more about this, though, kind of go and read this guy, this guy, this guy, Richard Payne Knight, other people, and he included Gerald Massey in the mix. And uh, so maybe that's where Grant got it from. Um, But basically, um, Grant developed, a theory um what grant did was basically try to include crowley within a tradition a pre-existing tradition mm. so that he could actually kind of explain and include other occultists that he enjoyed and that he admired into the same tradition uh leaving a position of preeminence to crowley but not keeping crowley as kind of the sole uh, uh master uh the sole kind of uh, informant of his kind of occult vision. So uh, through uh, the writings of Joel Massey, um, Grant posited that uh, there was a time back in uh, ancient Egypt and even more south in Africa uh, where the occult tradition actually started. And uh, it's kind of an Afrocentric, we could say, theory of the kind of of the birth of uh, an occult tradition, and the occult tradition was uh, represented initially by uh, Typhon and her son Set. Uh, so, which kind of had their counterparts in um, uh, the Ursa Major and Sirius uh, in the sky, and uh, the idea being that the kind of reproductive faculties back in the day uh, were basically ascribed to uh, women mm-hmm. uh, because the kind of generative power of sperm wasn't known. So 
the woman was celebrated as as life giver, and uh, so it was kind of a Bakufinian uh, age, which probably we, we could we could um, uh, put in line with uh, with Crowley's uh, Ion of Isis, um, and then obviously with the discovery of the generative uh, power of uh, semen. Uh, an Osirian faction, a kind of solar phallic faction, in opposition of a more uh, chthonic nocturnal faction that was represented by uh, Typhon and Set, was born. And um, according to Massey and according to Grant, there was like a massive, uh, a massive rift between these two factions, uh, with a dispersion of uh, the Typhonian tradition in other parts of the Mediterranean. And uh, that's how we basically got uh, different occult traditions in several parts of the Mediterranean, which kind of aligned themselves loosely with uh, with what was called the Typhonian tradition and what would kind of culminate into uh, Crowley's ideas. Mm-hmm. Um so, I mean, we do get this in a lot of uh, thinkers, not only occult thinkers. I, I quoted Bakhoven uh, earlier on. Uh, we have a lot of um, thinkers and philosophers and occultists who kind of are more in line with uh, kind of solar phallic uh, option and worship. Uh, while we have others who are kind of more primord- more towards a primordial feminine chthonic kind of uh, approach to to magic and occultism, and uh, funnily enough, Crowley would probably be inserted into the solar phallic one, you know, mm. just because of his, I mean, obvious worship of both the sun and the phallus. So, um, but in Grant's in Grant's tradition, basically, he is kind of firmly planted within within the Typhonian tradition. I mean, I have to ask, because I know he's someone that you also admire. I mean, would this Typhonian tradition, in the sense of that um, feminine uh, reproductivity, it seems rather cosmic, it seems rather Clarkesian. Is there a, would you say there's a Typho, there's a connection from Typhon and set to Eros, or is it, would that be a bit, getting a bit too abstract? Um. Well, Without getting too abstract, I think there's lots of um, lots of similar ideas. I mean, the fact that um, the fact that uh, Clagus's Eros uh, does advocate for a more kind of primordial approach uh, to nature and to the cosmos, and uh, the fact that chthonic ideas, nocturnal uh, nocturnal living are so central to Clarkson's philosophy, um, I don't think that's a stretch at all. Um, whether we can equate uh, Eros with uh, with Typhon or Set, that that would probably be getting too abstract. But definitely, I mean, I definitely think that even in the 20th century, there was kind of a very sharp distinction between uh, these two philosophies. Like, for example, if, if we want to place uh, Clarkson on the... Uh, on the kind of feminine chthonic uh, nocturnal tradition, we have um, other occultists and philosophers like Julius Evola, which were kind of firmly in the solar hyperborean uh, tradition, and who actually kind of mocked uh, his uh, fellow Italian occultists because they, everyone else, more or less, kind of belonged to this kind of uh, more chthonic primordial nocturnal uh, tradition. Because um, in Italian occultism, um, loads of ideas have been borrowed by Egyptian traditions. Hence, kind of the similarity of uh, of, uh, of the Typhonian ideas with uh, with those of uh, with some those of some Italian thinkers of the early twentieth century. So, I think it's something that kind of is still still present there today. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, in risk of somewhat repeating myself, we have the we have the occult and perhaps historical foundation of where the um, beliefs forces are coming from for this Typhonian tradition. But what does this Typhonian tradition look like in practice? And I, I guess that you know there's a there's a difference here, you know, in the fact we're moving solar, horizontal, phallic, up and down. You know, that's a very it's 
completely found its uh, home in the modern world. It's a very easy way to think about things in a way. And I think with the chthonic, um, and I wouldn't even say horizontal for chthonic, it's a dispersion, a leaning into. But with this, I, 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 the reason I'm sort of stuttering a bit here is there's a difficulty of talking about directionality of trajectory, right? right? So when I say like, what does the Typhonian tradition look like in practice? It's very difficult to say like, oh, we're going over there. You know, there's, it seems like there isn't so much as a teleology as something um, maybe more cyclic, maybe more, um, you know, it builds and flows. Uh, and, and more like this. So I'm just sort of, I don't want to risk saying, you know, wh- where was Grant going exactly with his practice? What was the exact goals of the Typhonian tradition, right. etc.? I get you because it's it's kind of hard to um, when we're talking of directionality uh, of kind of trying to apply that on Grant because you get rituals that he performed in the fifties and early sixties when uh, his new ISIS lodge was operative in London, which are very very kind of catabatic and. Uh, Chthonic and very influenced by some works of Lovecraft and uh, other authors. But at the same time, being influenced by Lovecraft also means that you're not going upwards. You're going, you're going beyond the upwards. You're going actually beyond the solar system. And um, at a certain point, Grant was very much influenced by the ideas of Juan Frato Achard, who had been... Uh, for a time, one of Crowley's prize students, um, who had basically posited that um, Crowley's Eon of Horus had ended and the Eon of Mart, uh, the goddess of justice, had started. And um, what, sorry, just to stop you there, what does what would that what does that difference entail? What does that movement entail? Oh, okay, so so yeah, you're right. So basically, in 1904, uh, Crowley had this revelation that he uh, wrote down in what is today called uh, the book of the law and it's basically um it's basically um very similar to what uh Joachim of fiore or other christian mystics posited you know like the three ages you know the father the son and the holy ghost or you know different different divisions of of, of time you know of, and so 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 more more of a kind of teleological uh understanding of uh, of history and uh, Crowley, of course, divided um, divided history in in three uh, major distinctions: the Eon of Isis, which uh, was kind of the matriarchal period that uh, probably uh, you know Bachofen alludes to in his works, that uh, probably Grant alluded to in the in the beginning with the Afrocentric origins of uh, of uh, the occult tradition. And then we have the Eon of Osiris, which is, of course, um, the Eon of um, the dying gods, the dying and resurrecting gods. So, you know, we have Christianity, we have uh, Attis, we have uh, uh, Dionysus, we have uh, Osiris. Um, and then, of course, with Crowley, who was the prophet of the new Eon, we have kind of this new age uh, of... Um, uh, in which uh, every man and every woman with the proper teaching and the proper understanding uh, could have actually forged their own path, kind of following their own will. And I think that's pretty central in Crowley. And um, But uh, one of his students, uh, Akkad, had basically posited straight after Crowley's death, because I think he didn't dare do it while Crowley was alive. So in 1948, Akkad had kind of said that the Eon of March had started. And... Uh, so it was kind of uh, a double eon, sort of. And um, so, like, um, Horus and Mart were kind of doubly uh, um, uh, governing this this time kind of together. Um, and Crowley had written about uh, the eon of Mart, that it, it was supposed to come, but he didn't know when because time... Uh, in those spaces is different than time in this world. So we, we already have with Crowley kind of an opening to celestial intelligences in which kind of time flows differently. And uh, I think uh, I think this is one of the things that really excited Grant a lot. And uh, the fact that um, Crowley considered um, 
these beings that uh, helped humanity, uh, so people's holy guardian angels, to be uh, actual beings, super celestial intelligences that lived in a kind of different dimension to ours, in which time flowed in a different way. Outside the circles of time. It's a very good segue to my next question. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there's two questions there, actually. I mean, in what sense, and it's very probably a very difficult question, but in what sense does time work for Grant? But also just to bring in, you know, which would lead us then into the later question on aliens and Lam, um, or Lam, I'm not sure how to, and Iwas as well. But this notion of them, they are definite beings, but when it's it's sort of one of the more humorous, I guess, linguistic problems with Crowley when he's writing about holy guardian angels is most people know about that tradition from the Christian church where every single person has a holy guardian angel but when we begin to talk about these as beings you know it sort of opens up as, as to what exactly these beings are and this also has a relationship with time so I guess to begin with time which which you were going into there but uh, how exactly does this work? Well um, it's it's kind of um it's kind of easy and hard <laughs> to answer this question. Um, the easy way to answer it is that in Nightside of Eden, um, which I think is one of Grant's best works, he actually posits the uh, existence of um, six eons um, as uh, representing a full cycle of a full life cycle. Um, so, Eon number zero, one and two, he doesn't tell us much about. They they're way beyond way before our time, and not much can be said about that. And so uh three, four, and five are Crowley's eons. So we can kind of get a rough idea of what they represent by by reading Crowley. And then and then you have Eon number six, which is the Eon of Mart. And that's kind of what Grant devotes the whole of outside circles of time to. Um kind of the arrival of this balancing force at the end of this cycle of time. It's very much, I mean, it's very similar in a way to um to the vet to the idea of yugas mm. uh in the East, without uh without the kind of uh negative connotations uh of of the later yugas. Like everything is kind of taken uh, uh, at face value by Grant. So the kind of destructive forces uh, of the Eon of uh, Horus are kind of balanced by the Eon of Mark just because it's that the natural way of things. So there's no kind of uh, moral judgment of like debasement of, uh, of life and times. Um, so there's this idea of like these huge cycles of time, but there's also this idea of contact with entities for which time is nothing. Mm. So you have these kind of two ideas floating around there, which um, which really kind of um, are the core ideas at the at the bottom of outside the circles of time. Would you say it's those those beings outside of time that the Typhonian tradition is, uh, in some sense, trying to contact, communicate with? I think I think the idea behind um the idea behind these um beings outside of circle of time circles of time um are an attempt to explain um the spiritual advancement uh or the the manner in which humans have advanced spiritually from uh the beginning of let's say this great cycle to where Grant was when he was writing about it so um i mean when he started writing the magical revival in 72 uh, that was kind of uh right in the middle of the ufo mania so um it's kind of um uh, pretty obvious that he would have been influenced by um by that kind of literature and also if we if we put that next to the Lovecraftian influences, so, you know, beings that live so far away and so detached from mm. our lives, you know, that time really doesn't, doesn't matter, doesn't really kind of work on them. You know, they're, they're, they're actually outside circles of time, you know, they're, they're not part of this great cycle. So the, there's these beings in that kind of contact humanity or humanity contacts it, it kind of it kind of depends um 
that are there and are kind of always there. Mm. And uh, I brought in the UFOs because kind of early on in his uh, in his career, uh, Grant kind of developed this idea that there were uh, trans-Plutonian communications arriving from outside, you know, beyond beyond Pluto. Mm -hmm. And he kind of um, thought uh, uh, about this planet called Nuit, like uh, the um, character in uh described in Crowley's book of the law in the first in the first uh, chapter of the book of the law so he kind of posited the the, the existence of this uh of this planet uh knew it or new isis in uh, uh later later works that kind of uh could be contacted and could send um uh, instructions and teachings um through elaborate rituals which apparently kind of happened during the existence of the of the new Isis Lodge, which which Grant had created uh, in fifty uh, five, and uh, it was open until until sixty two. Um, of course, Orthodox Thelemites such as Karl Germer, who was then the head of the OTO, didn't really take that well, and they expelled Grant from the OTO. But you know, he obviously carried on as if nothing had happened because he, he was uh, he was pretty much sure that he was you know in the right, and he'd you know received these transmissions, which you know checked out, and um, he, he just basically carried on uh, for the rest of his life, really analyzing uh, these um, transmissions, which have been kind of written down. In uh, uh, the Book of Silver and Liberoc Bish, um, the Book of the Spider, and uh, so you know, it's kind of he he made it pretty uh, clear that uh, these intelligences could be uh, contacted and were actually willing uh, to help kind of those who contacted them uh, advance in a spiritual way. And they and they very much were um, real beings these aren't uh, you know jungian archetypes or things of the mind these were real beings for grant well uh, that's kind of the whole uh <laughs> i think that's the biggest uh, point of contention when one analyzes uh grant's works um when i was uh one i think my favorite grant book um hecate's fountain uh is uh very much the best the best book uh, you can consult uh, if you want um, a taste of uh, the rituals which took place, uh, which allegedly took place, you know, during the meetings of the New Isis Lodge. And uh, so the, the, they were very much informed by uh, what, the, what the group was reading mm. back in the day. So, uh, you know, obviously Lovecraft, but they were also informed by... Uh, Sax Romer and uh, novel uh, Dope. I don't know if you've ever read that, but uh, a lot of people in the New Isis Lodge have read that. So, you know, in order to kind of stimulate their minds and kind of uh, bring a kind of uh, derailment of the senses, um, Grant had decided to use certain elements of uh, Lovecraft's fiction and of uh, Romer's fiction. And uh, if you read about the rituals, um it's pretty crazy because you have you know tentacles coming out of nowhere and kind of probing the priestess and uh things kind of really really um going terribly wrong and uh, crazy things happening you know actually happening manifesting so uh it's uh you know if you take that at face value and you're like okay that actually did happen you know that's that could be one way of seeing it. Uh, another way of seeing it is um, I, I was uh, interviewing a former student of Grant's from the seventies uh, called Mike McGee, and um, uh, he's very much uh, always been interested in Oriental philosophy and uh, uh, tantra and uh, studying those texts, and um, that's kind of. Uh, the reason why he 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 left the Typhonian order to begin with, you know, he really wanted to kind of focus on that aspect, and Grant was kind of happy for him to to do so. And he, I interviewed him for my MA thesis, and basically, Grant 
had told him, according to according to McGee, that uh, the trilogies were basically uh, exercise in fiction, which were kind of aimed at uh, um, arriving at a kind of derangement of the senses, which would uh, fine tune and uh, heighten the senses uh, of the reader so that he could actually have uh, magical experience. Uh, in uh, more easily, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, you know, there's these two different uh, ways of approaching uh, approaching Grant's uh, Grant's trilogies, really. And uh, personally, um, this is my opinion from a very uh, non-academic standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually find that um, Grant's novellas, Grant's fiction. Is actually where Grant um, talks more clearly about his magic and about like practical stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, his trilogies, which are supposed to be kind of you know instruction occult instruction manuals, are instead uh, yeah as 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 McGee said, an exercise in fiction. Mm-hmm. So I kind of tend to concur, and uh, I think that there's a lot to be um, gleaned from uh, Grant's novellas, which have kind of never really been uh, talked about or, or written about uh, in a serious in a serious way. So where, where does um, Lamb and Aliens play into this? I mean, we've sort of spoken about these Lovecraftian entities. Are these all somewhat of the same plane of being or is other things going on there? Um, so... At the big right at the beginning of the magical revival, you've read it, right? Mm-hmm. You have uh, like the very first table. I think it's within the first ten pages. You have this kind of um, graph uh, equating aspects of Thelema with aspects of uh, what we would call today the ne- necronomical gnosis, or you know the kind of the occult parts uh, of of uh, Lovecraft's writing. Um, and of course, you have like descriptions of uh, you know of uh, these beings kind of uh, manifesting uh, in the temple of the new Isis lodge, etc. Uh, but at the same time, you have um, aspects uh, such as that of Lamb, which uh, are kind of less, I would say, less tangible and less kind of obvious in their in their uh, link to uh, uh to occult knowledge um as i was saying before uh crowley in his uh in his last few years one day basically told grant that he could choose any of his paintings that you know any of crowley's paintings and you know he could take it home for free and so grant kind of went through all of the paintings that crowley had you know sketched out and everything and and decided to um to get this, uh, to bring home, you know, the figure of Lamb, which is uh, very much similar to what in the 60, late 60s would kind of be called greys, you know, grey aliens, you know, with this kind of big head and kind of small small eyes and so it's it, it's it, it's a pretty weird i've i've had to, i've had the pleasure of uh, and the honor of actually seeing it uh, live and it's it's really, really um, weird, and th- there's there's something about it that just uh, that's that's just kind of uh, eerie enough, kind of to to put you off a bit. But I think that um, the contact with um, entities, kind of beyond like transplutonian entities, um, aren't really kind of oh, you know, let's kind of do a ritual and get in touch with Yogg-Sothoth and see what he is, you know, he's up to and what he can tell me. But it's more a kind of becoming receptive to certain signals and certain messages kind of coming. So um, in a way, um, of course, the Lovecraft influence is like massive. But in another way, when you get books uh uh, like the Dawn of the Magicians, or you know, books by uh, Valet, you know, who is one of the one of the most popular authors on uh, UFO theories in the in the late sixties and early seventies. You have this kind of uh, 
influence on Grant of these creatures um, who can basically help out humanity and are there to kind of um, are there to help out and to kind of communicate certain uh, certain uh, tidbits of knowledge kind of to help to help those who contact them to kind of uh, further their spiritual advancement. So there's there's a there's a bit of a difference between what kind of uh, someone might think. Although there are kind of orders that have been kind of created which do practice kind of Lovecraftian magic um, derived from, you know, I guess chaos magic and uh, that kind of strand. Um, but uh, I mean, if, if you do read uh, outside the circle of time, which is really where the where the alien kind of idea is first put forth um it's kind of not as it's not as lovecraftian and and scary as you might think Mm -hmm. but at the same time it's like it's it it, he grant tries to explain it in a kind of quasi scientific way or as much as possible you know Mm -hmm. he talks about uh he talks about uh when gregor mathers of the golden dawn had um actually met uh the uh secret chiefs vis-a-vis he had you know nosebleeds and blood coming out of his ears etc etc and blavatsky had same kind of thing happen to her when she met her mahatmas uh so basically you know grant basically said oh you know the same thing happens to people who are contacted by aliens so you know we, we can actually kind of we can actually think that you know these uh these encounters are probably kind of similar mm-hmm. only that mothers and Blavatsky knew what they were kind of what they were facing while normal people probably didn't but the effects the physical effects were kind of similar so the spiritual effects could have been similar if they had known you know so there there, there is this kind of quasi scientific approach to to the thing which which i find really interesting mm-hmm. do you think crowley would uh you know the split between sort of germer and grant do you think crowley if he would uh fantastically still been around he would have said grant you you're on the right path nah no <laughs> nah i don't think so no uh there's uh i think what when when we, you were talking before about greer talking about crowley mm. i think we what what I think what Greer was talking about is like the what now is called like the cult of Crowley, mm-hmm. or, or what Crowley himself called Crowleyanity, mm-hmm. uh, and you know so we're talking about the cult of Crowley. We're not talking about Salima, so I don't think there's enough Crowley uh, in the trilogies to satisfy Crowley's ego. And had he been alive, he would have he would have said, "What are you talking about? You know, these people are just authors. These people are just writing books, and this is real magic. You know, don't don't mess around with it." Well, you know, what Grant did was kind of mix UFOs with tantra, sex magic, and um, uh, Egyptology, Egyptosophy, Golden Dawn, uh, Thelema, of course, and 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 Crowley always has this position of preeminence. I mean, like he always does in all nine. Uh, but he's not he's not the only one. He's not alone. So I don't, I don't think he would have appreciated okay. that. Well, you mentioned at the start as well, the one place of clear critique in Grant is Tantra. Mm. So what, what, I mean, what does Crowley get wrong? Or does he just, uh, not, does he just not know? Well, I think, I, think, I think basically what Crowley gets uh, wrong is, um, I mean, you, you can't really blame Crowley for that because what what Crowley kind of learned about Tantra, he learned from Westerners. Mm. And uh, so basically you have the Western Western Tantra, he learned from people uh, like the early founders of the OTO. So the OTO, like pre-Crowley OTO, uh, like Elner or uh, Royce or uh, Hartman, you know, the, the, the people who actually founded the OTO, and they basically all talked about um, Tantra and um, its kind of sexual element, mm-hmm. but um, and he wrote about it and published books about it. So it, it was, you know, it, it, it was something that they believed they knew a lot about. Um, 
what is actually uh, being proven by um, quite a few scholars, um, especially um, Gordon Djurjevic, who wrote a beautiful book called uh, uh, Crowley, India and the Occult, or Indian Occult. And there's a chapter on Crowley and one on Grant. Anyway, it's a Ratledge book, and it's by Djurjevic, and I think it's called India and the Occult. Um, but it has a chapter on Crowley and a chapter on Grant, and it kind of tries to see, you know, what's what and, you know, where where these people could have kind of gotten their knowledge from. So so the, that's the idea. And um, when it comes to sex magic, um, I kind of want to make it um, brief uh, and uh, as concise as possible. Um, you would have in the OTO, in the OTO you would have um, like the eighth degree OTO, which was uh, basically uh, – masturbatory magic mm -hmm. and then you have the ninth degree oto which would be uh heterosexual magic mm -hmm. and then you would have created by crowley the 11th degree which would be homosexual magic mm -hmm. so grant doesn't have this like uh, in grant's um system uh woman has a much more central uh place in that okay you have the eighth degree usual then you have the ninth degree, which is heterosexual intercourse. And then you have 11th degree, which is heterosexual intercourse while the woman is menstruating, because that's where um, Grant thought that the magical vibrations or colors, as he calls, calls them, um, actually kind of flowed from. So the the kind of best kind of uh, of uh, of sex magic was uh, was actually was actually that and he equates that to the oriental idea of maithuna uh and so uh, makes it kind of much more spiritual and less kind of goal oriented than uh crowley sex magic was which was kind of performed for you know money or success or you know this and that and i'm really kind of synthesizing to the extreme here because mm -hmm. uh, i know that, <laughs> that we've been on for quite a bit and i hate to ramble on but yeah that's kind of like one one big thing and um one of the people who knew about tantra most was um um this furrier called joseph cohen he was at ninth degree oto uh, back in the day when Crowley was still alive, and that's the person uh, Crowley directed Grant to, and he he basically told him like, look, you know, if you want to learn tantra, I, I'll admit to you, I'm not, you know, I'm not the top person to kind of uh, ask about tantra, so go to him. And um, uh, Cohen had written um, a commentary on this tantric text, and basically grant quotes it uh, quotes from this commentary a lot during his trilogy so i think his knowledge uh, about about tantra and uh, and about sex magic comes from there so moving on from that where do we see grant's influence today it's uh, i mean it's there if you, if you have the eyes to see it it's there you know seriously like you, you can see it in um comic book artists uh alan moore is like a huge grant fan uh he's written a um a beautiful article on uh on kenneth grant called beyond our ken you can i think you can find that online um um grant morrison uh is uh another one who has been really kind of influenced by um uh, by grant i don't know if you've ever read nameless but uh it's uh it's an amazing graphic novel and uh it's as uh grantian as it possibly can get and uh, the influence is like really really clear and um you also get um you also get quite a bit of grant in um uh, David Lynch and the third season of Twin Peaks. Um, there's a book, uh, name escapes me. It could be a simple history of Twin Peaks, but written by David Lynch and Mark Frost. And Mark mm -hmm. Frost is um, the co-producer of, of Twin Peaks and was there, you know, since the first season. And he, I think, has a bit of an obsession with uh, Jack Parsons mm -hmm. and 
like that whole kind of California scene of the OTO. Um, but um, you can tell that he's read uh, he's read some Grant because in the third season of Twin Peaks, there are some reference to Morv and to certain uh, aspects of uh, kind of Grant's oeuvre, which kind of are not really kind of easily discernible. But if you if you read the book. And, you know, he talks about kind of when he talks about the history of Twin Peaks, he talks about kind of the um, atomic bomb kind of uh, opening, um, um, opening kind of uh, access points for these uh, um, transplutonian energies to come in. Grant said the exact same thing, you know, because UFO sightings uh, kind of started to become really um, too many to count from when Crowley died. So. Uh, basically, that's what Grant said, you know, after Crowley's death, basically his death kind of created this rift that kind of opened up planet Earth to these transplutonian energies. And uh, you get that, you get that in Frost as well. And so there's a there's an episode in season three that starts with um, the atomic, like atomic bomb exploding. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in black and white. I can't remember what episode it is. Um, I think it's, it could be six, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Uh, but, like the first 10 minutes are like, silent and it starts with this like atomic explosion and you can find loads of reference uh on grant in there if you kind of like know what to look for mm-hmm. uh, so yeah i mean it, it, it's he's niche but he's getting like bigger and bigger and like starfire publishing which uh, are basically keeping the grant books in print i mean they've just been constantly reprinting and uh, and now they've been publishing uh, the books in paperback because they used to kind of go for a fortune back then. Um, but nowadays, you can really kind of buy every every Grant book from the trilogies in paperback format, and I think that's really really amazing. And uh, you know, more pe- more people can get into him, and uh, it probably takes perseverance. Um, I, d- I think I told you this the first time we. Uh, first time we spoke that mm. I actually thought that magical revival, when I finished the last page, I thought that it was an elaborate joke and that, you know, someone had taken like a year of his life to actually kind of come up with, you know, complete nonsense just to see who would read the whole thing, you know? And uh, so, yeah, it, it, it's hard, you know, to, to, be, to begin with, if you like, if you don't know anything about Grant, but you know, even Crowley is when you start with Crowley. Where, where would you advise people to begin with Grant? I would um, tell them to read the, the the trilogies in order. So start with the magical revival. But um, there's a fantastic book uh, called The Servants of the Star and Snake. Mm. It's published by Starfire, and uh, it's edited by Henrik Bogdan, who's uh, another academic who's written extensively on both Kenneth and Steffi Grant. Um most of the artwork in uh, in Grant's books uh, is from Steffi's uh, craftsmanship, and it, it's it's amazing art. So there's yeah, this book called Servants of the Star and Snake is kind of a primer for uh, uh, anyone wanting to dip their toes into Grantiana, mm-hmm. and uh, it kind of covers in um, self-contained chapters various strands of. Uh, of Grant's thoughts. So, you know, you, you get a chapter on Grant and Lovecraft, Grant and Massey, Grant and Crowley, Grant and the Typhonian tradition, Grant and UFOs, written by, uh, well, most, I think 50% academics and 50% occultists. So you, you kind of get a good mix in there. But it's all very clear. And when you when you kind of then go on to read Grant, it's, uh, it's I think it, it will make a difference. So definitely Magical Revival and Servants of the Siren Snake. Okay, okay. Well, I'll be sure to put the links for for Starfire Publishing in the description below because it's the one, the one, you know, the place to go to to get these books. Uh, but what are you what are you working on now? Anything grant related? Uh, nope, nope, nothing grant related uh, at the moment. Uh, I'm uh, actually well. Th- there is this idea that's been <laughs> there is this idea that I'm kind of trying to uh, to to pitch uh to some publishers some academic publishers which uh would be uh about grant's influence on the ccru in uh 90s you know in the 90s at your university of warwick uh you know the philosophy department so that would be something that i would love to write now whether i 
can get a publisher for that is uh, something completely uh, something completely different. But that is definitely something that um, I would want to write in the future, um, especially you know when you when you go uh, into the whole kind of Cthulhu Club and those kind of late writings by uh, Nick Land, and uh, which seem kind of highly informed at least by uh by grant and uh and lovecraft and uh at the moment i'm actually writing another book on um a book on early 20th century occultism and uh, uh magical communes so i'm including crowley stint uh, in sicily at Chefalu, uh with his magical commune there and Gurdjieff and his uh Priory. priory and uh other american uh examples concerning spiritualism and theosophy Sounds fascinating. Well, I'd love to. I'd love to talk to you when that that book comes out because when that does come out, I'll let you know. Okay. Well, it's been a great conversation, Chris. Thanks very much. Yeah. Thank you for having me on.